Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. In society and the wider business community, we've moved away from the idea that corporate misconduct is caused by bad apples alone. Unethical decisions and actions generally don't take place in a vacuum, but are enabled, facilitated, and sometimes demanded. And a variety of factors can be at play. The ignorance of rules and regulations, business strategy and incentives, or pressure from and the examples set by leaders. Stories of corporate malfeasance aren't strangers to news outlets or entertainment networks, but while the circumstances can make for great media headlines, what is arguably more interesting is watching how those companies respond. Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Miner, Senior Ethics and Compliance Advisor at LRN. Today, I'm joined by Carlos Villagran Munoz, Parente de Compliance at CMPC. CMPC holds the infamous title of being responsible for the largest antitrust violation in Chilean and Peruvian history at the time. But over the past decade, the company has sought to not just recover from the scandal, but rebuild stronger by focusing on ethics, culture, and values. We're going to be unpacking that journey of how CMPC got from there to here and where they continue to go. Carlos, thank you so much for joining me on the Principled Podcast. Thank you so much, Emily, and thank you, LRM, for uh, this great invitation. And for giving me or for giving our company, CMPC, the opportunity to, to share our journey, uh, the CMPC journey. Um, I honestly believe that our experience can be of uh, great help for other companies, for other compliance teams uh, facing hard times. And then, by the way, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this uh, series of podcasts, so I really hope to, to rise to the occasion. Oh, thanks. That's so great to hear. And I, I completely agree. I think the story, it contains so much that can be learned for other organizations, both in terms of, of you know, preventative measures, but also when these types of instances arise as they do, as they can, how to respond. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Great. So before we jump in, let's kind of set the stage a bit. Can you tell me about CMPC, what you know? What do you do? Where do you operate? How many employees do you have? Absolutely, sure. So, CMPC is a hundred years old Chilean-based company. It's a Chilean-based holding. It's a very traditional, very respected, way, very well-known company, and one of the uh, worldwide leading manufacturers of pulp, paper, packaging, personal care, and other forest-related products. CMPC currently has more than uh, 19,000 employees. Uh, we have uh, operations, industrial operations, in uh, eight countries in Latin America. We're a really Latin American company, as well as uh, commercial offices in the U.S., Europe, and China. And the company, you know, does uh, you know selling and distribution of its products to more than more than 45 countries around the world. So we're talking about uh, um, what we call a multi-Latina, real multinational Latin American-based company. Thank you for that context. And so my understanding is that in the early 2000s, one of your divisions 
was involved in a collusion scheme that lasted for about 10 years before it was discovered and the company self-reported to to regulators. Can you tell us a little bit about that collusion scheme and what enabled the situation? Because I think that that's, you know, this is where we 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 get down to the lessons that can be learned and shared um, for, for our listeners. So was it a lack of appropriate controls? You know, were there misaligned incentives, the role of the culture, all of the above? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Sure, Emily. So uh, I will take uh, just a few minutes to, to, to give a general context uh, of the case. Um, so uh, CNPC created and participated in a cartel. You know, we are talking about collusion with a key competitor to assign market share, to control the, the prices for the products in a very particular business unit. We're talking about what we call at that time the tissue business unit. I mean, personal care products. Okay. At that time, this subsidiary in Chile and Peru, because you know the case happening in those two jurisdictions, it was a very there were very small subsidiaries at the time. You know, just one or two out of twenty or thirty subsidiaries, uh, heavily focused on retail or mass consumption. So, a little bit about the history of the case. In June 2014, the company became aware of an investigation conducted by the authority in Peru involving our local tissue operation in Peru. You know, what the company did was, of course, run an internal investigation, including all the subsidiaries, just to check if these uh, allegations were true, and if so, if that conduct was also present in other operations. But, but you know what? Nothing was found. But then, one year later, the local, in Chile, the Chilean Antitrust Authority began their own investigation. And then the company, CNPC, realized, okay, we have a problem here. So the investigation was uh, resumed, new interviews with executives, and there you go. The company was able to identify serious antitrust infringement, and they actually occurred from almost like 10 years, more than 10 years, from to the year 2000 to 2011, at least in Chile. So in that, in, in, at that moment, the company decided to report to self-report to the local antitrust prosecutor office, giving maximum cooperation to the authority here in Chile and Peru. I don't want to, to, to go into the details, but you know the aftermath is that the company, CNPC, was fined both in Chile and Peru. We're talking about uh, around $30 million uh, in, as a global amount. The company required both entities to implement a, an antitrust compliance program. That's one of the reasons why I joined the company in 2018 uh, as part of that effort. And, as, and additionally, and I think it's important to mention this uh, as part of the culture that we will discuss later, is that the CNPC uh, voluntarily reached an agreement with the National Consumer Office here in Chile in order to, or at least to try to compensate the final consumers. And that agreement was uh, up to uh, $150 million in total. Uh, almost around $10 uh, were given to each Chilean citizen by uh, with, with 18 years old and older. Uh, this is the, so far the first and only case in which a company tries at least to compensate not the clients, but the final consumers of the products that were involved in this uh, uh, collusion scheme. So as you can imagine, we're talking about a, a case with huge reputational impact uh, if you check service, even today, public opinion service, you, you will see that people here in Chile, same in Peru, they see collusion as the same type of violence uh, as other cases such as uh, corruption in politics and the Catholic Church abuses. 
So we're talking about a case that really struck a nerve in, in, in Chilean and, and Peruvian society, and, and, and the, the consequences, the reputational consequences are still present today. So let's go immediately uh, to, to your question, Emily. As you mentioned, I do not believe in bad apples theory, you know, uh, because you never perceive yourself as a bad apple, you know. And in this case, of course, we're talking about a 10 years collusion, right? But at the beginning, they were not bad apples. You know what they say, and I, I like this, this, this phrase that I, I, I saw in one of the seminars uh, some, some, some months ago. People do not wake up in the morning with intention to ignore the law or to behave unethically. Usually you see that kind of uh, behavior because they are competing objectives, lack of awareness. Uh, people neither, neither knew the risks. They were not properly trained. They were the influence of context, you know, the expansion, the growth. They are new competitors. We are uh, under a lot of pressure. So we have to be mindful that these guys, especially at the beginning of the collusion or the cartel scheme, they were not fully aware of the, what they were doing. By the end, of course, of the, the last uh, the, the, of, of those 10 years, of course, they were aware. But at the beginning, that was not exactly clear. What we saw when, when I joined the company and we reviewed the case again with a different optics, you know, not in terms of investigation, but trying to understand the root cause, we identify what we call a cultural fracture. There was no one company. CNPC were many companies. The holding head office had no visibility of a small subsidiaries such as, you know, tissue in Chile and Brazil. There was a lot of subcultures, different silos, many different cultures. The company was growing. Still it is, of course. And the main focus was on the machines, the operation, the technique, but without proper corporate governance. You know, it was way too vertical. Lack of accountability, lack of awareness, no speak up culture at all. Remember what I said before, during the first investigation made by the company, the executive didn't mention this. I mean, the company was not able to get the information from the executives. So there was no speak-up culture. You know, if you check the declaration, the statements made by these uh, employees who were involved in the cartel, and this is public information, by the way, many of them say, you know, I thought it was normal. I hear rumors. I think nothing. It was normal. It was accepted. It was promoted. It was even rewarded, you know, because these guys, they receive an instruction from the senior management and from the board. You know, you have to be aggressive. And again, it's not it's okay to be aggressive on, from a commercial side, but these guys, these executives, they mix the concepts. For, for them, being aggressive allow them to engage in these uh, unlawful activities. Another um, issue that I identify, what about the compliance program? What about internal controls? Well, uh, the company had, in appearance, at a formal level, some sort of a checklist compliance on the paper. Uh, we had a code of ethics, conduct, hotlines, policies and procedures, occasional training, but no risk assessment, no continuous evaluation. There was not a real compliance program to uh, impact in the behavior of the employees, you see. Motivation, the context, the standard and practices that were not aligned. There was a broken system of shared values. If you ask at that time, the people working for CMPC, they will say, you know, our main internal core value is that we trust each other. We trust and honor our word, which is good. It's perfect. But in this case, that main core value was distorted by these subcultures, by these silos, by this disalignment between motivation, objectives, the context, the strategy, the standard and the practices. Uh, you know, I hope to answer your question, but this question that is part of the DOJ compliance program evaluation guideline is, uh, uh, have they, uh, the managers, persisted in their commitment with ethics and compliance in the face of competing interests or business objectives? Well, in this case, the answer is no. 
when these guys, they have different objectives, very aggressive, they stand by those objectives instead of their E and C commitment. Mm-hmm. As I'm listening to you talk and sort of describe the situation, I'm seeing so many parallels to other, you know, really well-known cases where, you know, a company might have, you, you talked about having, you know, a hotline and training and policies. So like having those standard or typical elements of an ethics and compliance program, obviously we need them, but it's not enough to just, you know, rely on those alone because the the, the, the culture of the organization, the, the example, um, you know, set by and, and direction set by leadership, the role or values, those are all, you know, arguably, you know, perhaps even more important than having the code, the policies, the hotline, the training. But, you know, of course, in truth, we need we need both. And so I'm just I'm seeing those parallels to to some of the really big, big name cases that, you know, actually are now even on Netflix. Um, you know, there's a documentary um, of sorts about Boeing. Um, there's one of Theranos, you know, both examples of companies where they had those program elements in place, but the culture and and the leadership were not promoting the quote unquote right thing to do. And in fact, you know, when you shared a little bit with me earlier about how this case unfolded within CMPC and sort of how it evolved from, from the beginning where, you know, it was seen more as like a business strategy and then how it evolved into very kind of obviously criminal activity of, of prepaid cell phones and throwing laptops into, into the river to destroy evidence and, you know, things that you see in movies, but were happening in, in real life. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned those two cases, uh, the Theranos case, the Boeing case. It's amazing to see that even if you are talking about different companies, industries, and countries, the root cause for, for compliance, uh, ethics and compliance failures are, are, are quite similar. You, know? uh, you can find similar root causes, even though cases are so, so different. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So you and CMPC have been really open about this scandal, you know, publicly as well as internally. And really using it as a learning experience for the organization, how has CMPC sought to rebuild stronger from this very large case of misconduct and and reputational damage in the in the community, the violation of trust, the sort of those how how have you sought to to recover from that? And specifically, you know, you talked about how one of the elements was building out a more formal ethics and compliance program. So what has been the role of, of your of your compliance department and the integrity program as part of that recovery process? Sure. On one side, we have the company uh, being very transparent with the case, as you mentioned, uh, self-disclosing, complete collaboration with authorities, this voluntary compensation to all consumers. Just to mention a a couple of actions, you know, at that time, the chairman of the company, some board members, the CEO, main senior managers, they visit all mills, plants and offices to explain the case. So transparency and full collaboration was uh, part of the, of, 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 the, of the narrative from the beginning. You know, we fail. We are sorry. We want to do the right thing. This is a painful lesson, but we want to be transparent about it. So um, then I can mention, you know, going trying to go to, to the ENC program. Uh, in 2016, the company decided to do a complete overhaul of its corporate governance structure. 
new business units, corporate teams, three lines of defense, new board members, uh, new technology, new teams, you know, internal audit, legal, risk management, HR, sustainability, compliance, you know. This was a really, this crisis was, was taken from a, oh, from a holistic perspective, you know, not just trying to solve an antitrust issue. It was not about antitrust, by the way, which can be sometimes more technical uh, infringement, but it was ab- about culture and the company understood that from the beginning. Uh, now, what about the role of ethics and compliance? You know, when I joined the company, my boss, the board, the ethics and compliance committee, they told me, we want ethics and compliance to be a tool to change and to manage our culture. You know, uh, we want to change behavior. This is, was awesome because, uh, Emily, there is a temptation to create a very formal checklist uh, on, on the paper compliance program. You, you know, there are, there are so many standards and good practices and benchmark outside. It's easy to create a compliance, a formal, basic compliance program. But these guys in CMPC, uh, that is one of the reasons why I joined the company. They were talking about behavior. They were talking about culture. And they were talking, you know, Maybe we won't be able to do everything we want to do in terms of ethics and compliance, but let's be real, let's be consistent, let's be serious. You know, our first job was to work in an initial ENC strategy uh, for the next three years, what we call the integrity and compliance program. You know, integrity more focused on values and compliance on, on, on rules, you know, on the law, right? And of course, we are addressing the typical dimension of every compliance program, prevention, detection, response, focusing on anti-corruption, anti-trust, data privacy, um, anti-money laundering, sanctions, trade control, etc. It was a very basic but uh, strategy. I'm not saying easy, but basic. I mean, in terms of a very clear strategy. And you have to remember, CMPC is, and at that time, still is, a very traditional company. So we had to work with the CMPC team. We had to, to do a lot of hearing talking, listening, trying to integrate these efforts, trying to explain what compliance and ethics meant, you know, and what they didn't mean at the same time. And our first approach, I think that we can talk about this later, was more focused on the rules rather on the values. We created what we call an integrity policy, which provides a framework of do's and don'ts in different matters and activities with a very practical guidelines, a very basic and, and, and easy to understand framework and policies and procedures. Our people, our employees were ashamed. They were afraid. We thought at that time that the company was not prepared yet to talk about values. They wanted an immediate response. They wanted to go back to their works, to their jobs and feel safe and have very clear rules of what they can and cannot do. So our main focus was mostly rules, do's and don'ts, a very clear and easy to understand message. Sure, values were involved, but but again, more focus on rules. And I want to make a short comment here, Emily. Uh, I think that compliance, ethics and compliance, is mostly about timing. When you are able to work on a strategy for a company, uh, you have to be mindful that companies, and as any person, we evolve, we change with time. So our messages have to change, have to also to evolve. Uh, maybe if we took a different approach four years ago, talking about values that, that in some cases can be more hard to understand from the beginning. I mean, in some cases, maybe the result would have been different. We decide to go with rules just to be able to provide a more clear message. We uh, you know, stressed the importance of a speak-up culture. That was like the second main objective we were asked to work on. 
you know, we have a complete overhaul of the hotline system, the report investigation process, the management. We focus our attention on root cause analysis, remediation, communication campaigns, uh, on transparency as well, trying to show the people, uh, our employees that the hotline worked, that it was useful, that it was an additional tool they could they could use. You know, just to give you a, a just a, sh- a very a, a small example, uh, from 2018 to 2021, we're getting almost like three times, even four times more reports through the hotlines. Now, that doesn't say says a lot, but it really, there is one thing that this figure, this this number shows that people know, know about the hotline and they are willing to use it. Absolutely. Sorry to interrupt, but, uh, you know, I feel like it's, it's so often there's the question of if our hotline reports are increasing, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And People have differing opinions, but but I generally tend to believe that that's a good thing because it means that people, uh, as you said, they they know it exists, they feel safe using it, and and you can't respond to what you don't know. No, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's a good sign that at least you are that they trust the hotline. They know that that, that the hotline is there. And and just to to, to close the, the the answer, and the third focus was leadership or leaders. We realize, you know, again. CMPC, traditional, very vertical and in somehow paternalistic company. So we use that in our, in our, in our you know, in favor. We saw the antitrust infringement case that the senior management example, you know, their words, their message really uh, shaped the culture of their teams immediately, very fast, very, uh, very aggressive in a, in a very aggressive way. So we focus on leaders. We remind them that Actually, they manage three, let me put it this way, three main gears or elements to shape behavior. They are the one who set motivations, the objectives, the expectation, organizational justice. They are the one who, uh, you know, uh, set the strategy, you know, they, that the strategy, business strategy that answers to the context. They do risk management. They do business decisions every day, right? And finally, they are the owners of the processes, and therefore they are the owners of the standard and practices that that you know that regulates how those processes are done. So we start working with the leaders, telling them, you know, these three nerves that you are the owner of, you know, um, can immediately generate a response from employees, can immediately affect how they uh, conduct themselves, you know. Uh, so be careful when you uh, push those buttons. And at the same time, we provided very practical examples of how to push those buttons, to move those gears in, a, in an ethical way. In, a, in order to answer, you know, again, an additional DOJ question, you know this question, um, how have senior leaders through their words and action encouraged or discouraged compliance? We use that question in all our leadership uh, uh, trainings. And we asked our managers, let's put it in this scenario. The regulators, the police is here, you know, the DOJ is here, right? And they will ask you this. They won't ask you about policies and procedures, controls. No, they will ask you, how do you encourage and discourage compliance through your words and action? And then we take it from there and we explain how those words. And with very practical examples, we start providing more tools for the toolbox so they can use the proper words and do the proper actions in order to change behavior. Again, Emily, this has been a quite an adventure, a journey. I, I, we could be talking, you know, like several hours about this, but this has been a little bit how we have been facing this challenge in CMPC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you talked about 
how programs like people evolve and how, you know, immediately after sort of the case was uncovered and and being investigated and the fines and all of that. So in the immediate aftermath, the 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 organization chose to focus more heavily on the rules and the do's and don'ts. But I also understand that now you you're in the process of shifting the the emphasis from rules to values. You know, now that there's this solid foundation where everyone understands those do's and don'ts, moving, you know, expanding, evolving to a greater understanding or appreciation for the values or the, the shoulds or shouldn'ts. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution um, and what that looks like at CMPC? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we began focusing on attention on rules. Uh, but of course, as uh, as you, um, you know, I'm, uh, I remember this uh, LRN 616 podcast with, between you and Susan Divers. Uh, you know, rules are good, values are better. I, you know, that, that a very powerful, powerful statement. Rules are good. You need rules. You need to update those rules. But values can really guide behavior and shape culture. So what are we doing today in CNPC? As I mentioned before, we set our first strategy in 2018. Uh, and now we're in a, in a very critical moment. We are updating our ethics and compliance strategy. And the core or the main aspect we want to to change or to to uh, to evolve to it's uh, shaping from rules to values. That's what we are doing today. You know, it's not that we're going to leave rules aside, but we believe that you know, uh, especially during the last times that we are facing very com- uh, complicated context. You know, we have war, we had COVID, we have uh, increasing you know pressure from the markets. Uh, we realize, and I think that COVID was a very good example that you can have your best rules, your best program, but facing those changes in the in the context, in the environment, that are so you know they're so uh, serious and, and so aggressive. There are no rules that actually can support that impact. From those changes. So we need something else that allow us to have one comprehensive ethics and compliance program that can't, uh, you know, support, that can, uh, you know, uh, be there to provide continuous support to the business when there are changes. So now we have a well-documented ethics and compliance program. We are trying to shift our attention to values. And I think we are ready to talk about values. Again, uh, this is a lot about timing. Four years later, we are in a very different company, you know. New people have joined the company, new co- corporate structure, new businesses. Uh, there are new narratives, there are new messages going around. Innovation, human rights, uh, diversity and inclusion. We are ready to go back to our values. And we are ready not only to talk about values. Let's remember, we had a cultural fracture. So what we want to do, and we're in, working right now, it's, is to redefine our values. And this, this is a, an ongoing process. Uh, it will take some time. It's not a, about compliance department. It's, it involves HR, sustainability, the business itself. This is a collective effort. Uh, and what we want to do as one team, one company, is to uh, update our values, I mean, at least from a, from a visual side. We are working on different assessments, ethical culture assessments, surveys. Uh, we just work on a program assessment. 
as a, as a, as a starting point. We want to, to see what we have been done so far and how to de- redefine our strategy because we want, again, a new narrative, a new message uh, with substantial involvement from the board and senior management. I think that, that that's very important. Um, you know, when you talk about ethics and compliance from a rules perspective, people tend to see that as a legal issue. So one of the things we want to fix is when talking about values, we're not talking about, you know, legal uh, legal matters. We're talking about conduct. We're talking about behavior. And therefore, the senior management and the leaders of the company, regardless of their position, we have a lot of leaders in different areas and, and units, which are, you know, with their uh, example, shape and change the behavior. We want them on board of this effort. And that's why we're creating ad, ad hoc committees, uh, we are opening our evaluation. We are, again, transparency. We are opening our, our assessments. We are trying to, to to get more people involved, to enhance the conversation. Now we're talking about human rights, diversity and inclusion again. And that's part of, again, of uh, not only, you know, we're not talking about changing the code of conduct, you know, and in a Word file, okay, let's uh, share it between three people with, you know, with some changes and that's it. For us, you know, the final result is important, but but most important than that is is the is the road, you know, is the is is the, the you know the the work we want to to do this work with all the, the employees. So, you know, we want to inspire. I think that that's something you, Emily, and, and Susan said in this uh, uh, season six uh, podcast episode. We want to inspire our employees. Our employees want to be inspired as well, and we believe that values can help a lot. And and, and again, just to, to to close this this, this answer is that. Susan said it uh, better than I can do it. Um, rules are the skeleton. We need to keep working on rules. We have a strong team performing day-to-day activities to verify that those rules are observed. Uh, but values are the blood and the heart. And I think that now we have we're in a good position. People are listening. We have their attention after three or four years of hard work. And now it's time for them to help us, to help the, the rest of the company to, again, reevaluate and, and update our values. And then our ethics and compliance program becomes or, you know, keeps being a huge, to, uh, substantial tool, a great asset for that goal. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's it's about operationalizing ethics and compliance, right? Like such a great analogy of rules being the skeleton, but then, you know, you that, that's, that's the scaffolding, but the conversations, opening up the the conversations. You talked about not just the the end, but the process of how we get there. Engaging leaders at all levels, engaging employees, seeking that input, getting ethics and compliance as a habit, as part of the daily the daily day, rather than you know something that you do once a quarter when you when you have to take training or something. So I you know I want to I want to close by continuing on this this topic of evolution. And talking about your risks and how your risks are evolving. Of course, they are, like, like as with any organization. For example, I know that you're expanding your operations in Latin America. So there's an expression like driving the car while changing the wheels. How are you thinking about, you know, you're doing so much when it comes to your, your ethics and integrity program and, and the organization more broadly. So while you're doing that, how are you also thinking about future proofing, if you will, against new or changing risks as you're as you're building out your function and being intentional about about shaping your your ethical culture. 
No, absolutely. I mean, as you mentioned, Emily, the company keeps growing. You know, I mean, we are uh, very recently the company uh, acquired uh, some additional operations in Brazil and Mexico, just to mention a couple of uh, high risk jurisdictions, right? And we have to be mindful that one of the of the reasons behind this cultural fracture was that the company allowed subcultures and silos to exist in different countries and business units. So when you, you said about, uh, you talk about future proofing and what about the changing risks, we cannot work on, on, on that particular matter without remembering, you know, that we have to be very careful that our efforts do not create or foster silos or subcultures. And uh, a key component of uh, E and C efforts is to be simple, to be consistent and to have one, solid and simple compliance program for everywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter if you make business here and there, but in order to get there, and this is part of the answer uh, to your question, you we are working uh, on a very extensive risk assessment you know, actions. We are uh, enhancing and changing our methodology of risk assessment. Risk assessment, uh, it, it's the best tool, of course, and it's a key component of every compliance program. It's important to, from time to time to review your methodology. Why are you doing risk assessment? You know, what are the, the output? Uh, what is the business getting from this risk assessment? Are you doing this just to comply with the general guidelines of how to manage and to build a compliance program? Or do you really want to get something out of that? What about the technology that can help you to provide in a more easier and, and clear way the results of that risk assessment? So we need to keep our radar updated. As part of my team, I have a couple of, uh, of, uh, of my team members who are focusing mostly on risk assessment, which is a continuous process. And by changing the methodology is that we want to train the business to identify the risks. You know, uh, no, this is not, a, again, we want to avoid the business seeing compliance at uh, this matter as a compliance matter. Risk management, risk assessment is a key component of a compliance program, sure, but that's how we can, you know, future-proof uh, against new changing cultures because we will be able to identify trends, um, new risks, and to respond appropriately. You know, COVID was a good example that risk management, risk assessment uh, tools have to be continuously reviewed. We're working on updating and simplifying on, 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 on our ethics and compliance program. There is a corporate initiative called One Team, One Company. Again, as you can see, the company is aware that fostering silos and subcultures really can you know, expose us to serious uh, dangers and risks. So the ENC program is part of the One Team, One Company initiative. We are creating subcommittees, ethics and compliance committee to get the business on a you know engage and involve uh, adding key partners from each business uh, at the beginning especially during the first years it was more an internal job you know it was between a couple of uh, internal areas but now we want to enhance our communication with uh, the business the, the the supply chain teams the procurement teams not just about talking and listening but trying from the compliance team to provide key information to them and again i'm thinking about your question they are the ones who are the risk takers. They are the ones who make the decisions. So we, as a compliance team, we have to help them to, you know, have all the risk on their radar, radars, to have information on, on how to manage those risks, because unfortunately we cannot and we should not exclude all the risk from our business, but we have to be able to inform and to train our, our people, not about rules, uh, uh, do's and don'ts, 
but about trying to install, or to implement, to give them the capacity to identify those risks, to be part of the program. You know, just to finish my, 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 the answer, um, we're working on continuous evaluation effectiveness. Uh, In-depth reviews, we have identified high-risk jurisdictions such as Mexico and Brazil that re- will require something else than just the basic ENC compliance program. We are aware that the, these jurisdictions expose the company in a bigger way, so we have as a team to work appropriately. The board and senior management will continue to be involved, and the hotline, there's a project here, uh, actually, Emily, we're not there yet, but our idea is to shift the hotline concept to a helpline concept. That's not just changing the name of a, of a website, it's way more than that, and that something that we will require, again, talking about values, talking about it's not about being the cop, it's about being the coach. That's on our radar right now, very exciting times. We're heading to the next three years of our ENC strategy. And, and of course, we look forward to move towards values and, and be prepared for the next risks that can appear or evolve in, in all the countries in which we make uh, businesses. Carlos, thank you so much. There's so much more that we could talk about, but we are out of time for today. This has been, you know, I just really big thanks for sharing this journey. It can be, you know, hard to talk about things that we we wish hadn't happened, but I so appreciate the perspective that you and the organization and your leadership have taken on, you know, how this is a tool, this is a learning experience and using that really keeping it front and center as you go forward in in so much of your business operations, not just ethics and compliance. So, you know, thank you so much for sharing some of some of those details with us. And I'm sure it's been really valuable to all of our listeners. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, LRM, for this invitation and uh, for giving us the opportunity to, as you said, to share our experience and, uh, and our journey. So I really hope uh, this uh, conversation can help other companies, other compliance teams. Yeah. Well, my name is Emily Miner, and I want to thank you all for listening to the Principled Podcast by LRN. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.